It's Tuesday, June 25th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Fool.com, Matt Coppenheffer. Good to see you, gentlemen. How's it going? Hey, Chris. It's going pretty good. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to talk some big macro stuff, some housing, durable goods. We've got some earnings to hit. We're going to dip into the Fool mailbag. Uh, let's start with, uh, earnings from Barnes and Noble. Uh, I should point out that up until yesterday, shares of Barnes and Noble year to date up about 25%, much better than Amazon. But of course, that was as of yesterday. <laughs> uh, today, not so much. Fourth quarter losses were more than double third quarter losses and the Nook division, which once upon a time, Jason, I looked at the Nook as maybe the Hail Mary pass that would possibly save this company. Nook division down 34% and uh, now they're basically Getting ready to put it out to pasture—is that right? Well, I don't know that they're going to put it out to pasture. It looks they're like just going to stop gonna making take, them. Well, no, I think what they're doing, from what I from what I read, if I'm understanding correctly, is they're going to take the e-reader uh, nooks and they're going to continue to make those in house. The tablet nooks that they have, which are you know more of a competitor with something like a you know a Kindle Fire or something like that, they're going to be working with those. Uh, they're they're going to be working with a partner in order to produce those. Um, and, and I think that takes a little bit of the, of the liability off of their off of their table, so to speak, where that's concerned. But I think that regardless, uh, you know, when you look at what Barnes and Noble's biggest challenge is going forward, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, the Nook, it, it, to my mind, is done. Like it, I, I watch them grasping at straws and trying to figure out this Nook franchise. It's like. I mean, you know, you have a, you have kids. You go to that, you go to a birthday party. There's like that one kid that just can't hit the pinata for every swing. <laughs> he just whiffs every single time, yeah. and and that's like what Barnes and Noble is right now with the Nook. Every single thing they're trying to do just ain't working. And and so for me, really, this is it, it's not like it's getting any better with the college store either. You know, that's we were talking about this before taping, and I don't know a lot of people know about this, but uh, Amazon recently bought a a little company, a business from Samsung called Liquivista, which essentially gives them the technology. Technology to make their Kindle e-readers, not the tablet fires, but the e-readers, they're going to be able to introduce full-on color everything for these Kindle e-readers. And so what the implication of that potentially is here going you know, down the road the next couple of years is that they're going to be able to really cater to students and textbooks and things like that. That's always been kind of the Kindle e-reader shortcoming uh, to, to this point. And it looks like this is going to help them get over that hurdle, which then means that Barnes & Noble's success in the college uh, bookstore division is really uh, you know, facing some headwinds as well. So this all leads me to believe that, as I've said before, I think they really need to focus on their bread and butter, how it all began with the the retail brick and mortar stores. And, and no, there's not the same market for that that there used to used to be. But there is a market for it. Uh, they may have to pull a Best Buy and close a bunch of stores and shrink the store footprint. Uh, but there is a market for it. I mean, it's, if you, if you have kids, I think it's always fun to take them to a bookstore. Schools are doing book fairs from those Barnes and Nobles, so they they do have a market for it. It's just going to have to exist as a smaller company. What do you think, man? Do you think that that world exists? I mean, I've I've experienced that uh, with my kids, and it does seem like certainly everything you've heard from Barnes & Noble about their larger, more successful properties, it's like, yeah, they're actually making money at those stores, but maybe it's just a question of closing the underperformers. 
or a question of timing. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm <laughs> thinking that that at some point, uh, way back when, there was Smith's Buggy Whip Emporium, and, yeah. and and the results started looking looking down year over year for for, for Smith and his investors and you know people are still buying buggy whips they still want to drive buggies and and people were out there <laughs> saying you know there's something very quaint about being in a buggy and all of this newfangled stuff i really want to go to a buggy whip store buy a high quality buggy whip eventually <laughs> smith went by the wayside yeah. as buggy whip emporium did too I think Amazon's where it's at. I love that. It reminds me of the truly great speech that Danny DeVito's character gives in the movie Other People's Money, where he's talking about, look, this business, and he's at an annual shareholder meeting, he's saying, look, this company is going out of business. I didn't kill it. And you know what? And he brings up the buggy whip analogy. He says, I bet the last buggy whip maker was probably the best of all time. (laughs) But when you have... A greater share of the market of a declining market, then you're on your you're on your way to the cemetery. There will still be bookstores. There will be great little bookstores that people can go into and and, and hang out and and touch and feel and and read the books and and test them out. But I just don't see a future for the model of having the you know a chain of of, book, of physical bookstores around the country. The other problem is, I mean, Amazon had the the wherewithal to make that. That purchase of Goodreads not too terribly long ago, and if, I, I, if, if you use it or not, but it's it's a nice app you can load up on uh, your tablet, and it's a great way to find new books to read, offer reviews on books, build reading lists. I was building reading lists for my girls for the summer while using it. It's just it's a it's a very nice uh, sort of integration in, into that uh, that e-reader world, and so I think that was just another brilliant move on Bezos's part to get that to get that uh, before Apple or anyone else could. Shares of Barnes and Noble, um, as I alluded to, down. Gosh, they were down about sixteen percent when we walked in the studio. Um, is there is there a reason to take a flyer on this stock, or is this just very much in the stay away category? Now? Just, I feel like there are too many unknowns here. I mean, no, I know there is the 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 thought there that. The, the founder of the company, the CEO of the company, may want to try to to buy out the brick and mortar retail side of the business. I, I, I just am not the, the nook side of the business has zippy attraction to me whatsoever. I, I just feel like there are way better options out there uh, than to try to get mixed up in a uh, you know a nebulous sort of play like this. Well, let's move over to the big macro and U.S. durable goods orders up more than three and a half percent in May, and this is. Not that I get excited about durable goods uh, uh, numbers. There's but, nothing wrong with getting excited about it, Chris. You can level with us. But but in the wake of just the the freakout that we saw at the end of last week in the market, it's just nice to see. Oh no, wait! When you're looking at the actual underpinnings of the economy, there's some pretty good numbers there. Yeah, and you know when when we when we look at GDP, that's it's. I mean, that's a, a very very high level number, and it it doesn't break out the differences in the in the different components that we've seen coming out of the recession. And one of the areas that's sort of been lagging as a percentage of GDP and, and in terms of growth has been durable goods. And this is where this is a sign of businesses investing. This is a sign of of moving forward, getting ready for for more consumption, more spending. And so when we see this in particular start to gear up or continue to gear up as it has been, that's a that's a particularly good sign in my mind that businesses are spending and that they're feeling confident. Um, part of the uh, the numbers here is just the uh, and I guess getting a lot of the credit uh, f- um, is uh, for this increase is commercial aircraft orders. Mm-hmm. Um, 
which seems slightly at odds, I, I, I realize that when you're putting in your order for commercial aircraft, you're looking years down the line. That's not something that gets cranked out. You don't take advantage of Amazon's two-day shipping for you know, commercial <laughs> aircraft. Um, but that seems to, just that alone seems to go against um, uh, the the negative side of FedEx's most recent quarter and just the whole notion of, well, FedEx is looking to cut some routes uh, from the U.S. to Asia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it does this on the surface, Jason, does this make you uh, feel just, I don't know, maybe slightly better about the health of the economy? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely, I mean, there are reasons to be optimistic. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, when you look at the past decade and the the boom that our economy felt, I mean, it could be argued that that boom was, you know, relatively artificial to begin with because it was based on a lot of free money that was, you know, loaned out on equity and housing valuations that really were too overpriced to begin with. So, I mean, it's, you know, we, we had a long way to fall because we were we were overinflated from the very beginning. And so I, wanna, I think when you see numbers like these, they indicate that we are coming back slowly, and, and that's really the only way that we can come back from this is slowly but surely. Let's bring in housing to the big macro picture. And uh, I should mention, you can follow us on Twitter, at uh, MarketFoolery is our Twitter handle, and we got a tweet uh, from uh, uh, a listener who identifies himself on Twitter as his handle is at Kelly Dude One, um, and he just tweeted us saying simply, "I don't understand this." And he included a picture uh, that I printed out here, and it's it's basically the very recent and very dramatic spike um, uh, in rates with respect to housing and just sort of mortgage rates and sort of you know. What is, I mean, first and foremost, Matt, uh, to Kelly Dude One's question, uh, what is behind this spike? Well, for years now, we've been hearing a lot of people saying that, or looking at what the Fed has been doing and saying, this can't last, these low interest rates can't last, at some point rates are going to start to rise. And a lot of people have really been burned betting on the idea that rates are going to start to rise. But what we had was the, the Fed uh, essentially tied their policy to to. The economics. So, so they're looking for six and a half percent unemployment, and they're looking to keep inflation and, and keep inflation within a certain band as they as they shoot for that target. So, if you looked at the the most recent projections from the Fed, they're thinking most of the Fed governors are thinking that towards the end of next year we could start to see that six and a half percent unemployment level, which would mean that the that the Fed's key target rate, they could start to move that. Now, between now and then, there are all these bond buying programs that the Fed has also been using to try to keep rates low. And so we should expect that they're going to start to tail those off in advance of toying with the with the target rate. And the bond market is, and, and, and everybody else, they're anticipating the, the end of these bond buying programs, and they're anticipating that that leading to higher rates. So in turn, nobody's stepping up to buy at low rates, and that's helping to push up rates right now. I, just before we continue with housing, am I the only one who just thinks that 6.5% number is just overly ambitious? I, I get the whole concept no, of not. trying to set ambitious targets, but when I hear things like 6.5% by the end of 2014, I just think there is no way. It's one of those things that if I could go to Las Vegas and bet on it, and, and, and I, I'm not trying to be negative here, but I just look at that and I think, I don't know how realistic that is. 
I don't really think it's realistic. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be like a wet blanket, but I, I feel like you have to look beyond just that unemployment number. You look at things like a labor force participation rate. You look at the number of hours worked. You look at wages. And I think that – so banking, I think, is a great example of an industry that over the past 10 years saw a big boom. But now what we're going to see is a big contraction as these banks start closing down banking centers. Uh, everybody's going online. I think there are going to be a lot of jobs that are lost in banking that won't come back. And so I think that we will you know, continue to see that sort of creative destruction as time goes on and technology plays a bigger role in our lives. And, yeah, that's taking some jobs away that won't necessarily come back. So even if that employment rate gets down, even that unemployment rate gets down to 6.5%, I mean, you still have to look even further past that to the quality of the jobs and really, you know, what it's doing to, to affect individuals' qualities of life. And, and I'm just not exactly that optimistic at this point on it. If the worst thing that anybody ever says about me is that I'm an unbridled optimist, I'll take the criticism. <laughs> I think we nail 6.5% unemployment next year. Really? Yeah. Uh, back to housing, because uh, also out this morning, the news that uh, single-family home prices, biggest annual gain in seven years. Uh, these are the numbers for April. Uh, again, Matt, it seems like yet another... Uh, underpinning of the broader economy is just looking really strong. And and I know housing's had a good run for a while now. It seems like the good run is just continuing. Well, to some to some extent, this so in combination, and I, I'm, I assume you're going to get to this too, but the, the sales numbers have also been up, but the, the prices in particular, that's been driven a lot by uh, a lack of inventory. So, so all of all of the crazy building that went on prior to the meltdown, and and all of the crazy overheated prices that caused that that building. So basically, all that ended up back out on the market, and a lot of that excess inventory has now been sopped up. So you've got a lot more buyers entering the market, particularly looking to take advantage of lower rates as long as they last, and uh, and that's causing prices to uh, to shoot up. I don't think is a, is an exaggeration here. And fortunately for us, and fortunately for our dozens of listeners. We happen to have a buyer here in the room. <laughs> a real, a I'd like to take this this moment. Jason to... Moser going to claim just a, a tiny smidge of the credit uh, for. Well, I guess it would be what June's results. When yeah, they I don't get... know if it's really a major market. Thirty three percent of the people on this show are buying homes right the, now. The northern exactly. neck of Virginia is not exactly, I think, boom time. But yeah, it's, we're, we're doing our part. You're really excited about this. This is something that uh, I know you're fired up about. Uh, can... I had to weigh my options, Chris. I had to weigh my. <laughs> So can you share just a little bit of, of sort of your experience venturing back into the single-family home buying experience? So I, I, this, is, this was really my wife's passion project. I was just along for the ride and offering my uh, spousal support where needed. Uh, but I will say, I, I, I will give her a, a tremendous amount of credit here. She found a neat little house that uh, is part of an estate. And this was basically a situation where the estate became desperate sellers because they needed to sell this one house to be able to close up the estate. And so she found, I think, a, a good situation there. And it'll be a, a nice sort of, you know, many, many years passion project. We'll sure be able to do a lot of neat little things to the house. and It'll be a place where we can sort of get away uh, from the hustle and bustle of the big city here. So so she was passionate about this as a project. And, I was less and, than passionate. And, I, I fully and you admit. were passionate about the notion of staying married. Yeah, I, it, that's exactly right. And I have to weigh those. You know, I have to weigh those. Uh, and really, so for me, I've got 11 years invested in this marriage at right. this point. Two lovely daughters, a lovely wife. I love my family more than anything in the world. And so when, when you look 
at it from that perspective. The decision, it, it was a no-brainer. It was a no-brainer. I had to go with it, Chris. After helping single-family housing results, Jason's now going to be helping Lowe's and Home Depot results. Oh, there'll be a durable good or two, I'm <laughs> sure, in our future. Commercial aircraft? Maybe, maybe, maybe a little smaller. Not until Amazon has that two-day shipping. I'm going to get a boat first. <laughs> exactly. Uh, before we wrap up with our final story, I want to thank uh, one of our longtime listeners, Don Sampson. Um, uh, last week uh, on Thursday, we had the the guys from Motley Fool Asset Management in here for Market Foolery, and then we uh, uh, left the studio and went out to the rotunda where the asset management team had their annual shareholder meeting. And uh, it was open to shareholders. It was also, I believe, Motley Fool One members were invited, and Don Sampson, um, who has emailed us before and and uh, has stopped by Fool HQ a couple of times, uh, very nicely brought me, because he heard me talking about the uh, the run amok race down at Quantico. Oh, wow. He brought me this uh, the newspaper from the Marine, Marine Corps base um, with just an amazing array of photos from the, the run amok race, and I'm... Very happy that I don't appear in any of them. I was going to say, did you make it? Uh, again, as I said on the podcast, I, I made it through the race, but uh, it was it was definitely not pretty. <laughs> um, let's close with uh, earnings from Walgreens. Third quarter earnings, pretty disappointing, and same-store sales. Anemic? Is that too strong a word? Uh, Same-store sales were 1.4%. And uh, I, I probably should have prefaced this by saying, kind of like Barnes & Noble has had a great 2013, the stock has had a great 2013, the last year, the last full year for Walgreens stock has been tremendous. It's up somewhere yeah. in the neighborhood of 65%. It's pulling back today after these latest earnings. You looked into it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Walgreens is a very well-run business. It's had a long track record of, of, of success. Uh, you know, when I look at, like, the next five to ten years and even further for these uh, drugstore-style uh, chains, whether it's a Walgreens or a CVS or something like that, I, there's some there's some headwinds they're facing, I think, that are that are going to be a little bit tricky for them to, to maneuver. You know, they were facing uh, a fall-off in generic drugs for quite some time, and that was helping their margin situation uh, for the longest time because the generics give them higher margins and become more profitable. And that they, they've kind of overcome that. But what I think it does is it exploits this – this relationship that they have with these uh, the pharmacy benefit managers uh, in this in this equation, which are a necessary sort of evil in in this chain of of uh, prescription drugs, and and we know that prescription ju- uh, drugs are just going to be a way of life, and and however healthcare shakes out, no matter what, it's there's a lot of hands in that cookie jar trying to get a lot of that money that's floating around. But I think that what this does is it exploits Walgreens' position, their relationship with those with those PBMs. And it's a weak position, right? Because once those PBMs start really tightening the screws, once they start demanding a little bit more out of that relationship, Walgreens is going to suffer. Uh, and so then what you, you consequently see is a Walgreens is going to try to become more things to more people. And it wasn't that long ago we were reading about a Walgreens that started selling sushi. Yes. And, and I mean, like, as absurd as that sounds, and no, I wouldn't buy sushi from a Walgreens ever. I wouldn't eat it if you gave it to me. Uh, that, I think, is it shows you the headwinds that they're facing, and they recognize that. They're, become, they're having to become more things to more people. And so while a sushi offering in a Walgreens in Beverly Hills might play out, you know, I don't think it's going to work so well in, like, Annandale, Virginia, right? I mean, I think that the demographic is a little bit different there. And, uh, so, you know, and I, I, I look at these these CBSs and Walgreens, as well run as they are, I don't know they make necessarily the most attractive investments, um, for me at least. 
I, I think Lou, it was Lewis Black that said the end of the world was a Starbucks across the street from the, a Starbucks. Yes. And, and, and I kind of think of the same thing a little bit when I think of the Wal- Walgreens and CVS. And to, to some extent, that has been a key part of the, the value in the franchise that if you need a, a prescription, they are there. They are right there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also going to require now that, that, now that they've kind of reached this, this point, uh, creativity in, in terms of finding growth moving forward. So I'm with Dick Jason. I, I think they need some some new, fresh ideas, and I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that sushi's it, but yeah. at least they're trying. I also feel like there's no. If I'm looking for one of those types of businesses, for the most part, I don't care which one it is. Whether, no. whether it's CVS, Walgreens, Rite Aid. If I'm going out, you know, at nine o'clock at night. I'm just looking for whatever is the closest one, whatever I think. That is extremely location-based. And, I mean, I know that some people might use that argument and say the same thing about Lowe's and Home Depot. And I, I would beg to differ there because I think there genuinely is a, a difference in those concepts and in, the, in their offerings and their customer service. Uh, and, and Home Depot, I think, has, has really succeeded that you know in, in that in that run. But, but yeah, I think that these drugstores are essentially commodities because you're just wanting to get the prescription filled and want to make sure they accept your insurance, and they're all going to. Um, you know, I mean, I think that, that Matt Keaton, a very important important point there as far as growth uh, they are the, the avenue that they're having to choose now is acquisition right and so right. Walgreen recently made this tremendous acquisition of, of Dwayne Reed chain of stores and that's fine but you, you run all those integration risks and and obviously it costs money to do that so I just you know it's not one of those things that just I think there are better options out there so uh, in keeping with the whole notion of drugstores uh, a couple of days ago the uh, the teenager who lives in my home uh, was stung by a wasp and uh, and she's fine but she's she's texting me yesterday and saying you know it really itches it's you know the the benadryl isn't working and so i just i go onto the google and find uh, all of these people writing about apple cider vinegar mm-hmm. rub a little apple cider vinegar on there and it takes away the sting and so i s- send that information off to her and sure enough it worked it just, and that's just what now I'm not necessarily going to, you know, use that uh, in place of Benadryl, but that was just one of the. It sort of just sort of got me thinking about home remedies and how they do actually work. Um, and I'm guessing someone like you, Matt, with all of your running outdoors, with all of your insane 50 mile trail races, you must have a home remedy tip for our dozens of listeners. Lacrosse ball. Uh, and any, I'm sorry. What? A, a lacrosse ball. Any any ache or pain that I have anywhere in my body. I have I've come to the realization that it's probably a muscle knot somewhere that a lacrosse ball it's it's not a pleasant solution but it works. <laughs> and what do you, so what do you do with the lacrosse ball? You you find the knot and you you just rub it roll roll the lacrosse ball in, in, into the spot. So, so if, it's, if it's in your lower back, get up against the wall, get the get the lacrosse ball in there. This to to our dozens of listeners, this is not medical advice. I was going to say, uh, and it's furthermore, quite... to avoid any potential litigation, let's be very clear: if you're feeling like you got a headache coming on, do not try to swallow the lacrosse ball. Right. right. Yeah. It also probably wouldn't work for a wasp sting. Right. Arm and Hammer, Arm and Hammer baking soda. That's like a, the, it's got a million different. But you were talking about bee stings and like I've, I've rubbed uh, that stuff. You can rub that on a sting as well. That stuff strong. Um, and one other thing I would just think of in in growing up wearing braces, you know, those things that irritate the hell out of your mouth. And, and with kids, you have to find a lot of these sort of uh, fever blister or whatever. And so gargling with salt water is another mm-hmm. really that's a money cure. We will end there. I thought whiskey was coming. <laughs> well, whiskey's really good too. I mean, can't really <laughs> at a certain at age, gargle with the, with the whiskey. But you know, for your kids, tell them salt water. Okay. Jason Moser, Matt Coppin, guys, thanks for being here. 
As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So no buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.